coach. How's it going? Going good. How are you doing, Dave? Doing well, my friend. Coach, give yourself a brief introduction to the listeners. Uh, Avar Rouse, a former basketball coach, coached for 10 years uh, at different spots around the country. Um, really felt like it uh, was one of the best experiences of my life. Well, let me let me correct you, Coach. Once a coach, always a coach. So you are still a coach in my eyes. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, it never leaves you. Exactly. You can't watch a basketball game without looking at it through coach's eyes. This is absolutely true. Oh man. So, Coach, you know, I I heard that you grew up in New York but moved to Texas. Talk about the move and how different those two states are. Well, when I was about maybe 12 years old, um, we were living in New York, and my mom uh, got uh, re- got stationed at Fort Hood, and uh, that was a big shock for me because moving from New York City and uh, basically a one-room, what you would call an efficiency apartment, to a duplex uh, that you have on a military base, I kind of felt like, man, we had climbed the whole ladder and my mom had come so far. And I was really excited as a kid because we had a backyard and a front yard. And I, I had to mow grass. Man, I, I, I was li- I, to me, we were living high on a hog then because uh, our life in New York was just so much different before my mom joined the military. And uh, Texas really opened up a lot of different avenues for me. And basically a, a world perspective for me, because living in the inner city, you just you get one perspective. And then when I got to the wide open spaces of Texas, you know, it's kind of like you could flourish. You could you there are so many different activities and things that I could do uh, that weren't available to me in the city that Texas just seemed, you know, like heaven. Oh, that's great, coach. So, you know, I read that you graduated from, is it Copper's Cove? Copper's Cove uh, High School. Yes, Copper's Cove High School. I graduated from Copper's Cove High School, 1993, the Bulldogs. Okay, so small world, that's the same school that a player I coached at Centenary College attended. Many years later, but uh, Wyatt Bahara. Did you play there? Say again? I said, did you play basketball there? At Copper's Cove, I played basketball um, my ninth grade year. And after that, we realized that basketball might not be uh, the thing that I was most skilled at. So I still wanted to be a part of the team. And uh, Coach Manley, uh, no, actually, it was Coach, not O'Brien, O'Neill, Coach O'Neill. My high school coach um, said, why don't you, you know, be a manager? And he allowed me to be a manager. Okay, so what were some of your responsibilities and duties as a manager in high school? So as a manager in high school, I ordered the food for the team. I made sure that every team had towels and, and, and got the water. I uh, made sure the gym was set up uh, for every game, or both gyms actually were set up for every game. Uh, handled all the equipment, 
uh, basically all the stuff that an assistant coach does uh, at a high school level, they basically let me dibble and dabble uh, in all of that uh, as I, you know, kind of grew into the role. And then it turned out that, you know, I was not bad at it, I guess. And, uh, you know, it kind of just went on from there. Uh, I would, I was very, very fortunate that my high school coaches allowed me the, the uh, latitude to grow in that position because that's where I really felt um, – kind of fell in love with basketball. When did you realize that you wanted to coach basketball for a living? Uh, Probably when I got – after I left Coppers Cove High School, I graduated. I got a scholarship. Uh, My high school coach at the time was um, Coach Manley, and uh, he took me up to um, Midwestern State University with a old old basketball coach some of your listeners might know of. His name was Gerald Stockton. Uh, and um, he, he took me up there, and Coach Stockton was losing his manager uh, for the basketball team, who was a senior. He was losing him, and he just basically told me, well, you're going to come here and you're going to be the manager, and this is what you're going to be responsible for. And gave me a scholarship to boot. So, uh at that point, it, it kind of went from it being a hope or a dream to kind of being more realistic that I could potentially pursue coaching. And uh, that's I would say that was it, you know, where, where I got a scholarship to kind of continue on in basketball kind of sealed the deal for me. That's awesome. So you eventually transferred to Baylor, correct? I did. After two years of being at Midwestern, I went to uh, Baylor University, and there's a neat story behind that because um, Coach Gillespie um, was at South Plains Junior College and tried to recruit me away from Midwestern my first year and to come to South Plains as a manager on a full scholarship. (laughs) And and, And what Midwestern did was they doubled my scholarship. And so I had to stay. And then the next year, Gillespie goes to Baylor. And uh, he has me come work camp. And I basically auditioned for Coach Miller. And um, that that August, they called me and gave me a full scholarship. That's awesome. Yep. So, so when you go from you know being a high school manager to then Midwestern was Division Two, correct? It was a D two. It was NAI in my first year, and then we went D two. We were in the process of going D two. Okay. Yeah. So you know, talk about being at a a you know a big Division One school. Just how your roles and duties uh, change. It just uh, you know I was the head manager over. A, probably seven or eight guys. And, um, you know, once we got past the initial hard feelings of me just coming in out of nowhere, when they realized, you know, I just wanted to be part of the team and I was happy to be there, uh, things kind of got, got very smooth. And uh, I'll just tell you, it's, it's very fast-paced at the D1 level and your responsibilities, I would say, mirror – uh, again, a lot of assistant coaching responsibilities. Um, you have to be able to deal with things on the fly. Uh, uh, 
always changing things. It's amazing. You know, your uh, coaching listeners will definitely get get a full understanding of what I'm talking about because you you basically are the all the coaches is coaches right hand man. And, you know, you try to be there and be able to put out any fires uh, or potential uh, dangers that, you know, present themselves to the team. So and that and when I say dangers, I'm just talking about from dealing with academics and, and helping the guys with academics to, uh, you know, uh, a school coming in, but not necessarily knowing where to eat or having a place to eat because they're going to arrive late or something like that. Okay, that's great. Talk about, um, you know, who you said you were the, the head manager. Who, who else were managers there and, and the coaching staff, you know, people that, uh, you know, are still involved with the game? Oh, boy. Wow, now we're getting really <laughs> – um, well, the coaching the, – from the coaching aspect, that's one of the – you know, that was the place where I met uh, Rodney Terry one of the best coaches that I've ever worked for or had the opportunity to work with. Uh, Coach Terry um, was there. Coach Gillespie was there, uh, Billy Clyde. And uh, at the time, Larry Brown was there. And then Coach Miller was there. There's Brad Autry was also there as an assistant there. Um, Those were probably the – four or five coaches that I had spent the most time with at, at Baylor. And then from the managerial side, I think that our managers for the most part went on to do other things besides just coach. If okay. I'm not mistaken. Wow, that's great. Um, you know, you were a student assistant for, it was two coaches at Baylor, correct? Coach Johnson and coach Miller. Uh, Coach Johnson had the job before Coach Miller, and I came in the summer after Coach Miller had replaced Coach Johnson. Okay, gotcha. Right. So Harry Miller was the only head basketball coach that I coached for at Baylor when I was a student. Okay. Talk about the differences uh, between, you know, the head coach at Baylor and the head coach at Midwestern State. Just as far as, you know, philosophy, in-game coaching, running a program, culture? Well, I, I think it may come as a surprise to some people, but, um, I, you know, the philosophy and approach to the game is very similar no matter what level you are, you're at. Usually um, with the head coach, when it comes to the head coach, he's going to want to recruit uh, aggressively. Um You know, he might not have the budget that you have at D1, so he doesn't have all the resources that you have. But the approach as far as breaking down film and watching film, hours of film and, uh, you know, putting game plans together and scouting reports together, you might not have the same resources, but it is the same um, attention that is paid at each level is what I found. Um, it may it drops off when you get to the junior college level, I would say. But the D two, the competitive D twos, and 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 D one, you're gonna find that they all have that same kind of approach to the game as far as you know. Hey, this is what's important. This is how we're gonna find success, and we need to do that by doing our homework. 
Um, and each head coach is kind of going to expect you to do expect that from their assistants. Okay. No, that makes sense. Uh, you know, back then, I'm sure they didn't have, you know, 100 managers and 10 support staff roles. What, what did they, they have at Baylor at the time? Was it uh, three assistants and a head coach? Was there a director of basketball operations? How did they do it? Right. The director of basketball operations and the um, video assistant, that was a relatively new uh, well, that was that was not there when I was a student. So when I was a manager, all that kind of stuff was left to the managers. So the managers, again, like I told you, they played such a huge role uh, for the head coach as far as they, they did basically the things that you you have those people that are full time coaches now basically doing. Um you know, the managers did that stuff. We broke down tape. We we spent hours doing that and preparing it so that the coaches could put together a scout report, not have to look at the offense and the defense at the same time. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff fell back to the managers. Am I still on point there? No, definitely. Okay. Definitely. Um, what was the rest of the question? I'm sorry. Oh, no, just, uh, you know, was it, uh, three assistants and a you know support staff. Right. Okay. The staff overall. Okay. When I was at Baylor, there were three full-time assistants, um, and there was a you know first assistant, second assistant, and third assistant. Or I, they had another title for that third assistant. I forgot what the name <laughs> of it was. Oh man! Uh, but the, there were three assistants. There were three assistant coaches. And uh, when you're in a when you're at a D1, you know, all of those assistant coaches, pretty much two of those assistant coaches are the recruiters. And then you have one guy that would hang back and take care of the academic stuff at home with the with the guys. Um, Brad Autry ended up being that guy for uh, while I was there. And then Rodney Terry uh, went in, went into that role next. And then he eventually moved up to a, a recruiter as well. Um, but we had Coach Gillespie as one of the recruiters, uh, which was phenomenal. He's just in, so intense. And he was really one of the guys that, uh, you know, pulled on the managers to help with recruiting and specifically me. Uh, he, you know, all the a lot of the uh, insight that I got to how to get recruits and what, what to – you know, present um, came from Coach Gillespie um, and my experiences at Baylor. Uh, when you were at, when I was at a D2 school, um, there was only one full-time assistant and then you might have a graduate assistant. So in, the, in, in that, that's how the two levels differed. Again, resources, you don't have those coaches to help you. So you, again, lean on your manager's, uh, or your graduate assistant to do so much more. Okay, no, that makes sense. So after you graduated from Baylor, uh, what did you do as far as coaching? Uh, you know, were you were you doing high school? Were you working a nine to five? And how did you uh, how do you land your next coaching job? Okay, as soon as I graduated, well, actually, my junior year when I left Midwestern in August which was absolutely ideal for any coach to lose his manager, the only one in August. 
uh, to another school. Uh, when I left, they, my coach called me in December, and his name was Jeff Ray. And he told me, he said, Abar, I know you abandoned me, and he was just joking, but he said, <laughs> if you can graduate in a year and a half, I'll give you your first coaching job. And he and and basically I went to my advisor and my advisor said, well, you're going to need 84 hours in that time period. And we mapped it out. And it was like 17 hours here, 16 hours there, 18 hours here, 18 hours here, 16 more hours in the summer or something. And <laughs> and then I could graduate. Boy, I, I tell you what, uh, my mom probably was the least proud of this, but uh I got just about a C and a half, a 2.5 over the course of that year and a half, but I managed to graduate in that time, taking all those hours. And Coach Ray, you know, I was lucky. He he gave me my first job um, back at Midwestern State as a graduate assistant coach and uh, was was one of the proudest moments of my life to have the opportunity to come back and serve a guy that had, had taken such good care of me um, and and that I had up and left to go to this big D1 school. Uh, so I was I was really appreciative of that first opportunity and tried to make the most of it. No, definitely. It certainly sounds like it. Right. Well, when you were at Baylor, um, I can't remember, was Brian Skinner there at the time? Absolutely. You know, I got to spend two years with Brian. Um a phenomenal player, watching him develop. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, we covered the fact that I was uh, at Coppers Cove in high school, but me and Brian and Roderick and uh, a couple other players that were on the team uh, had known each other because we were all in the same district. So we all did summer league together too. And so we we all kind of knew each other, and it just seemed like a very natural fit when I got to Baylor because – there was a history there between Coach Gillespie having coached at Coppers Cove High School and Ellison High School and Coach Miller having coached at Temple High School and now being at Baylor. When all of us got together, it was amazing because, with you know, we kind of all knew each other and had at least had some relationship um, with each other from that summer league and from high school, you know, the high school district. That's awesome. Now, you also had a young Grant McCaslin also, right? You know, yeah, we used to call him Rat. He'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> Grant was Grant was on the team. He was a walk-on, I think, my first year. So I think I spent two years with Grant, if I'm not mistaken. And he was, an, he was awesome then. He's an energy guy then. And I know he's still an energy guy. I don't know. You know, we're getting older, so <laughs> some of that might leave you, but – he was an energy guy there, high impact guy, uh, and and that's why I think Coach, you know, Coach Miller kind of gravitated towards him. He was so positive um, during our, our, you know, that year. I'm just telling you right now um, that he was he was a very 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 interesting uh, player to be around because he always had energy. He was always upbeat. He was just what you wanted. And a guy that was walking on, and he was gonna he was gonna try his hardest, he, you know, to go with those guys, and uh, and you know that that I'm telling you that added to his success because uh, he had to fight for everything he, he could get on that on that basketball court. It was very competitive. 
I can imagine. I've only heard great things about him, so that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, he's a good guy, man. Talk about – so after Baylor, you go to Midwestern State. How, how many years are you there before your next move? Oh, man, this is going to become a reoccurring theme in this this coaching journey. Uh, I was at Midwestern for one year, and then I got a call from Coach Gillespie, and he said that Bob Marlin had just got the job at Sam Houston and needed an assistant. And so there I go, uh, off on the 1-800-U-Haul again, and uh, I'm leaving Coach Ray again in August. (laughs) I left in (laughs) August, so we go through the year. We had a crappy year at Midwestern that year, and uh, Coach fired, uh, I don't know, six or seven guys in uh, February. He told them in February they were done. And uh, he told us, well, I just fired six or seven guys. Uh, you guys better go uh, find me some players. <laughs> so we go out, we, we hump in, and we, we recruit our butts off and uh, get all of these JUCO transfers in. And uh, it looks like we're going to have a great team. And then I up and leave in August. And uh, this is also going to become a reoccurring theme in this thing. The year after I left, those great JUCO guys that we brought in, what do they do? They win the conference. Wow. (laughs) Damn near undefeated. (laughs) Damn near undefeated. So they win the conference. But I go to Sam Houston and uh, work for Bob Marlin. And uh, it's his first year coming out of Alabama as a head coach. And uh, I work with um, Neil Harden. And uh, I can't I can't remember what uh, the other guy's name was. Good Lord. It'll come back to me. But uh, I work with, with Neil, who I think is still with Coach Harden, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, yeah, uh, Marlon, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, and that, that ended up being a, a – you know, just a, it wasn't a very good year for us. It was a tough year. You know, I think we only won eight basketball games, maybe 10. And it just ended up being a really, really tough year. Anyway, I, I worked there for uh, approximately a year. And then I move on to Ranger Junior College. Because at Sam Houston, I was still a graduate assistant. I, I think I was making $10,000 a year teaching and uh you know, working, uh, handing out equipment um, uh, part-time. So, you know, I had to have multiple jobs. And Ranger offered me the opportunity. I still was going to have multiple jobs, but I was going to make a little bit more money. I think I made about $15,000 a year. So I did that. Uh, I made that move uh, to Ranger Junior College the year after Sam Houston. So, And so who was coming at Ranger then? I know that uh, Billy Gillespie was there. I know he's at Tarleton State now, but um, you know, who was there at that time? Todd Neighbors. Todd Neighbors was the coach at Ranger Junior College when I when I uh, was hired on as assistant and assistant dean of students uh, at at Ranger. And again, we we you know that that turned out to be a a really really good experience for me. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and, you know, a uh, very small school. Um, and, uh, we ended up, I think winning about 18 games and doing really well, uh, because, you know, the expectations weren't very high. So we kind of blew some people away, uh, with how well we were able to compete in the league. 
and after that, Coach Neighbors actually got a head coaching job in the same conference at Hill Junior College. And I moved on to uh, North Carolina with Coach Terry, Rodney Terry. And I spent a year out there uh, coaching um, at, oh gosh, what is it? A junior college in Wilmington, North Carolina. I cannot is think it, of it. Go ahead. Is it Pitt? Pitt Junior College? It, it was a it was a small junior college in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, I can't think of what the name of it. There's a, it wasn't Wilmington Junior College. It was it's whatever the county was. I think was it was the, like a county junior college there. And I was working for Cape Coach, Fear. Say again. Cape Fear. Cape Fear Community College. So I left. Ranger Junior College and transferred and, and became the assistant at Cape Fear Community College. And that was basically a volunteer assistant. Uh, and I had the opportunity to work for Coach Wainwright's son, who was coaching uh, at the junior college. Coach Wainwright was the head coach at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington at the time. And um, I was going to do that for about a year. He knew that he was going to have a position open up in a year on his staff. And uh, I did that for a year. And then uh, my intentions were to join the University of North Carolina Wilmington staff. But I got another offer, a little <laughs> bit more money. And Coach, are you there? I, I can't hear you. And the opportunity, one of his coaches said, hello? Coach, I, I missed all that. Can you start over at uh, you got a job offer with more money after leaving North Carolina? Yes, I got a job offer in, uh, after leaving North Carolina at Southeastern Community College in Burlington, Iowa, the Blackhawks. And uh, they're coming off a national championship. And one of their assistant coaches was taking a leave of absence to go try to coach pro basketball over in Europe. And uh, the guy asked, you know, again, with uh, Coach Wainwright's connections and uh, Coach Gillespie's connection, uh, I was able to get a job with Joe O'Brien up at Southeastern. Uh, and uh, at the time, they were the winningest uh, JUCO program, junior college program in the history of, of, you know, the NC, NJCAA. So I jumped at that opportunity with, you know, where I could make a little bit more money and uh, have an opportunity to coach some really, really good JUCO players. And that, and that turned out to be just that, you know, it's a very, I will tell you what, they have very intense basketball in Iowa, man. They are not playing up there, buddy. Oh, that, that uh, program, that was probably the only junior college that I ever worked at that w probably was very comparable to a D2, high D2 or a high D1 in their approach to the game in every facet, from where we stayed to how we traveled to um, 
the demands of 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 the fans and the alumni and the uh, boosters and the and and Coach O'Brien. He, he's a very intense guy, and uh, you know, but you know, we were able to find success through all of that, and um, and that was really really good experience for me as an assistant. So at this time, when you're you're doing kind of the JUCO route, yes, did, did you? want to become a head coach at the JUCO level? Did you want to get back to the four-year? You know, where are you at mindset with that? Well, as I'm moving on and, uh, you know, I just felt like uh, I needed – I was learning. You know, you do, you do a lot of learning early in your career, um, and sometimes that's forced, you know. Uh, but I, I, was, I was doing what I needed to do kind of to move up the ranks. So I was, you know, started at some junior colleges – Ranger and Cape Fear, a lot less known junior college, uh, not as many, not as visible. And then you go to Southeastern and everybody in the country is calling you for your players. I think we had seven guys sign D1 scholarships from USC to, I don't know, uh, uh, FIU. We, they went all over the place. Uh, Illinois State. We had, a, they, they, we had, we had a lot of players that year. Uh, so, you know, uh, that exposure to other coaches and other coaches getting to see, you know, you, that you can handle business on that level uh, is kind of the, the benefit of doing the junior college thing, uh, you know, going that junior college coaching route. Um, and you get to meet all those D1 guys and interact with them. So that really proves beneficial for me. And I was thinking D1 but I knew that I had to kind of just bide my time to kind of get what I wanted. And uh, that was, uh, you know, it was always on the, on the top of my mind, Hey, I want to get to the D one level, but I knew that I had to show people that I could operate at uh, the highest levels of whatever level I was going to be on, whether that was Juco or D two or, you know, D1. I, I wanted to show people that I could do it didn't matter what level. So I tried to focus on that uh, and, and still keep my, you know, horizons open. But, um, you know, that was my thinking at the time was it, this is all a progression to get to the job that you want. No, that definitely makes sense. So, you know, at this point in your life, um, you know, are you married? Do you have kids? Do you, you know, I know that those jobs don't always have health benefits. So talk about that part of the mindset of navigating your career. When you're a young coach, you really don't think about, well, I didn't think about uh, probably health benefits or retirement. Uh, I might get retirement because one school is, a, uh, is associated with the state and, uh, and in my position, they offer retirement in my position. Um, that happened you know, probably around stop number three or four, maybe Iowa was the first time that I got full-time like benefits uh, like that. Um, but the other ones did not. So you, you starve in coaching early on and you, you sacrifice that, you know, uh, and my mom helped me a great deal because I was not making a lot of money. My first job paid, I think, $5,400 at Midwestern. Sam Houston, my next job paid 10000 and then Ranger 15, and then so on and so on, till you get to Iowa. I think I was making like 26000 and I had benefits. And uh, 
you know, you, you don't, it just, it, if that is your priority, then you may need to consider another profession early on, but early on in your life, you know, that at least for me, that was not my, my center point and those jobs did not offer those benefits. And, and that became important to me later in why I did not, you know, um, stay in some coaching positions, if that makes sense. Uh, I, I knew I needed to get to that point where I could do that. And without retirement and health benefits, it really limited the ideal of having a, a meaningful relationship for me. And, and, you know, that was just something that I put on myself. I didn't want to be able, I didn't want to be responsible for taking care of a family if I couldn't really take care of them. And so that really kind of made having a meaningful relationship with anybody and thinking about getting married a non-starter for me. The other part of that is a little selfishness that you, you have as a coach, as a young coach. I wanted to be able to pick up and move where necessary, when necessary. So, Absolutely. you know, your availability is a huge part of sometimes um, putting yourself in a position to get lucky. That's what we used to say in the business is that you have to put yourself in a position to get lucky. Part of that is being available at the right time and, and, and able to move very quickly because these things sometimes happen very quickly. No, absolutely. You know, my first coaching job, I moved 18 hours uh, to accept. And I, I would always tell the high school coaches back home, you guys know the game a lot better than I do. You guys are, 10 times the coach I am. I just don't have any responsibility so I can pick up and go. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and that, and for, and, and for a while there that, you know, helps you, you know, that's very, very helpful for the new head coach. It sucks for the old head coach, but he understands the game and understands where you are in your career. So he knows it's necessary. Uh, hopefully, you know, and he's helpful and, and supportive. Uh, but being, being a young head coach, you know, being available is huge. You know, I, I always wanted to be the guy, you know, I tell the guys at two o'clock in the morning, something happens. I'm your first phone call. You got to call me. You got to let me know. You guys got to keep me informed. So, uh, and I needed to be, you know, responsive to that. And, and sometimes it's, it's hard to have meaningful relationships when, when you know you're taking on that level of responsibility, you kind of surrender some some portions of your personal life, and it's like that in a lot of different businesses. But coaching, uh, I think it's imperative. And you know, thinking back on it, you know, you're dealing with people's children, and you make a you know promises that you're going to look after them just like they, they're your own. And it's always a comfort to parents when they know that there is a coach there that's actually doing just that. You know, they give you a hard time at the banquets though, right? <laughs> like, oh, coach is always, you know, checking on my class. Doesn't he have a life? He's coming over to my house to check curfew. Doesn't he have a life? Get a life. So that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, man, I, I've definitely been there. <laughs> I've had those talks. Yeah, man. So, so yeah, you know, for – Early on, I, I would say, yeah, it, you know, you you sacrifice some of the uh, personal in order f to reap the benefits professionally. Okay, that makes sense. So after Iowa, 
Um, did you have any other stops before returning to your alma mater? I did. Uh, so the guy, I left Iowa after the assistant coach that had taken a leave of absence returned to his position. I guess he didn't like uh, coaching in the pros in Europe. And uh, so I was kind of forced out of there. But I landed on my feet at uh, McLennan Community College, which just so happened to be in the same conference as Ranger Junior College. Very small world. And uh, I got the opportunity to work with another starting head coach. He's coming from high school. His name was Kevin Gill. And I was his first uh, assistant, you know, uh, at McLennan. And in the JUCO game, McLennan carries a lot of weight in the state of Texas. It's very respected. So um, I was honored to kind of have that position and, uh, you know, um, have the opportunity to work for Coach Gill and help him uh, bring about, you know, success there or continue to success. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely got a name. We had a player from there, K.J. Boyd, and, I mean, he he would talk about, man, I played with some dudes when I was there. <laughs> hey, man, that's the real deal now. I'm going to just tell you. Those guys – and you go down – that, that is the real deal. You know, you got a lot of guys that came out of there. Josh Newman, uh, Steve Shields. They're just a whole host of, of players and coaches that have uh, come through McLennan Community College. So I was really excited about that opportunity. And uh, we did, we, we came in, we, you know, not uncommon in junior college, even though you try to do this, we had, I think, 12 freshmen and 33 sophomores. And um, boy, we, we ended up tied for first in the conference. We, we really, we, you know, uh, they thought they were going to roll over us a little bit because Coach Gill was just getting into college basketball his first year in college basketball. But uh our guys were having none of that. The first game they played on that um, first game was at, at home against uh, South Plains Junior College. They were ranked fifth in the country. Uh, we knocked them off first night, 12 freshmen. <laughs> they got guys going all over the place, but we knocked them off. And after that, there was no looking back. We didn't lose a game at home that, that year. Damn. Those guys refused to lose. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, Coach Gill was just awesome. He's an awesome coach. You know, he's he's absolutely – he knew how to pull the best out of those guys, and uh, I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to work under him. Um, that led to uh, Baylor, which is in the same town in Waco. Uh, that led to kind of Baylor opening its eyes to me, and uh, we all had kind of had some experiences, me, Coach Ass, and Coach uh, – Oh, gosh. Oh, Coach Phelps. Coach Phelps, Deion Phelps. It's not Deion Phelps. Oh, gosh. What is his name? Rodney. What's Rodney's last name? Shoot, I, I couldn't tell you. Oh, God. Oh, it just I just drew a blank. Oh, my goodness. I cannot think about I, I can't think right now. It, it's totally leaving me. Uh, oh, you know what? Am I on the internet? I was going to say I'll look it up, but, but uh, that would that you know that's the success that we had at McLennan led to um, Coach Bliss and the other assistant coaches 
really taking a look at me when they're assistant coaching, uh, their director of basketball operations position came open. Now, were there other schools that uh, had kind of approached you about joining their staff? Just obviously the success you guys have at McLennan, your reputation, uh, or, or it was Baylor just kind of the, okay, it's his alma mater. He's good at what he does. There was a there was an opportunity because that's when Rodney Terry was on the Texas staff. There was going to be an opportunity potentially at Texas, but when Baylor stepped in and uh, basically, you know, um, I asked for a certain amount of money, and Coach Coach Bliss was like, "That's not going to be an issue," and and it took care of that in short order, uh, and the opportunity to play for Baylor. I mean, the coach for Baylor. I I was I that was it. It was like, man, I'm going to Baylor, and so uh, you know, I I jumped on that opportunity because I really felt like, and I still feel like this. That's the stuff head coaches are made of. Uh, when you go back and you start coaching at, you know, your alma maters, and and they, and they want you back, uh, and you find success. That's how you get head coaching jobs back at your school. No, I mean, it definitely makes sense. Yeah, if you can serve them as a manager and assistant, then when that head coaching opportunity comes around and it's your turn, uh, they give you a good look. I, I really honestly believe that at the time that that's, that's how head coaches were, you know, being – a lot of them were being made. So I wanted to take full advantage of that. So so there wasn't a prior relationship minus, you know, them might have – coming in to possibly recruit some of your players no that was the those were the prior relationships i had seen doug ash a couple of times on the road uh i had seen um coach bliss on the road a couple of times and just to say hi or inquire about this play or the or another uh coach mostly with coach ash he had he had inquired about a couple of players at uh a couple of the junior colleges that i had been at um and that was really it. That was the prior relationship. Uh, they had come over to our gym uh, a couple of times, asked to, you know, use the gym. But, I, again, I would have more contact with their director of basketball operations, just asking you to schedule it and is it possible. So that would be it, you know, would be the okay. interactions prior to me joining the staff. Gotcha. But those had all those had all went well and had been positive. So okay, talk about recruiting and then you know being a coach, not a student assistant, being a coach at the Big Twelve level and the level of coaching in that conference at the time. So when you when you're a D one assistant coach and you're tasked with recruiting kids. Uh, you understand that basically that is your primary job. That is is to bring talent to the head coach to coach. That in everything else becomes really secondary because we can run the best offense or the best defense and have the best game plan, but if we don't have you know the thoroughbreds to carry carry it out, then you know nothing matters. Uh, and at the Big 12 level, you need to find professional basketball players. You need to find kids that are ready to play against NBA talent night in and night out. 
because that's what you're going to face in the Big 12. You're going to face competition that is on its way to the NBA. And if the kid doesn't have the mental fortitude, toughness to handle that, then you better be able, be able to identify that as a recruiter uh, early on and because you're responsible for it. So there's plenty of pressure for coaches to deliver high-quality basketball players in every facet, not just athletes, but also thinkers. Because at, that, at, at this level, you know, you're playing against Paul Pierce and Rafe LaFrance and, and, and just a whole host, Brian Skinner's, night in and night out. Everybody has one, two, three, four potential NBA guys on their team. And the team that's going to win the league, um, win the conference, is definitely going to have that. They're going to have draft picks on their on in their starting five, and you better be able to recruit that quality of player. And so, every little detail, down to who their friends are, who the assistant coach at their junior college, I mean their uh, junior high was, all of that becomes relevant. In fact, that just becomes the homework that you better have done because everybody would have done that homework. Now, what now? What special thing do you know that everybody else doesn't know? And how do you present that to them? You know, I would say understanding, you know, having a firm understanding of, of how important communication skills on every level um, – are is is just paramount to being a good assistant at that level. If you don't, if you cannot, you know, I had a coach tell me one time, and please don't take this the wrong way, because I I don't feel like a, like like uh, our profession is is full of con men, but but there was a lot of sense. Uh, it made a lot of sense. Said you you need to know whether to bring a Bible or a beer, you know. <laughs> Wow. Right. So now I feel dirty, <laughs> but no, but, but, but that is so true because you're going to deal with kids uh, from all different walks of life and you better be able to communicate with people from all different walks of life. And, and that's, that's paramount at that level because that's, what's going to be required, um, you know, uh, as an assistant. And if you don't give that to your head coach, you're going to get fired. See, here, here's the other part of that. You know, that's the not-so-glamorous part. If you don't deliver on your main function, your primary function as a coach, which is basically to recruit talent for your head coach, you're going to get fired. You're not going to have a job. That's going to be it. If your talent doesn't deliver, you're probably going to be looking for another job. Right or wrong, I'm just telling you that's how it was at the time. No, and I mean, that's eye-opening to a lot of people, I think. And I, I think some people say that that's not fair, but I'm going to just tell you that, that, you know, if you know that going in, if they're crystal clear that that's your primary job, then, you know, if they're up front with you, you can't, you can't be upset with them. No, that's very true. You know, uh, and, and to be honest with you, it's not an unreasonable demand at that, at that level because – their job depends on winning basketball games. That's it. Everything else, you can say whatever you want. 
their job depends on winning basketball games. And I have a better understanding understand of that uh, even today is, is that that's – it's, it's a shame sometimes that that's the way it is because Harry Miller was producing kids that graduated. But if you're not winning basketball games, that does not matter. You know, you can you know you can have a failing team. They could be failing academically, but if they're finding success on the court, you can keep your job. But if if they're not finding success on that court, but they're passing classes, you're still getting fired, buddy. Because yeah. that's not why they're paying you millions of dollars. They're paying you millions of dollars to win basketball games and put people in those seats. You do that by winning games. Uh, that's a fact. Yes, sir. Now, so, now, Coach Bliss got his coaching start under Bob Knight at Army. Yes, sir. Enough, Coach Knight at Texas Tech during your time at Baylor. Did you have any interactions with the general? Say that again? I said, did you have any interactions with Coach Knight? Um, hold on just a second. I, you're, for some reason, the volume went down, so I'm having a hard time hearing you. Uh, give Not me – Give me just a second. I'm trying to see if maybe I can get back to – I don't know if it went off of – am I still on – I don't know if I'm on speakerphone. Can I hear – can you say something to me now? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. It just went off speakerphone for some reason. Okay. 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 But I can hear you. So did I have any interactions with Coach Knight is what you asked me. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes, sir. Okay, so my interactions with Coach Knight uh, were very limited. I did uh, have the opportunity to uh, meet him and uh, have a brief conversation with him uh, during a workout uh, that he did uh, at McLennan Community College for a couple of our our, uh, players. One in particular, his name was Eric Dawson, and uh, Texas Tech was looking at him. But while I was at Baylor, no, no, no contact with him while uh, I was at Baylor. Okay. But at McLennan, I did interact with him. Okay, and you called him Coach Knight, right? Of course. <laughs> I would, and I still would. I still do. <laughs> Obviously, I still would. Uh, man, you want to talk about the, again meeting a legend? You know, here's what I will tell you is that, you know, I've gotten to meet quite a few of those guys. You know how it is when you go to the Final Four. Uh, most of those guys are pretty approachable. Um, you end up in a bar or a Hooters or, uh, I don't know, you know, even on the court. You know, you're watch- sitting there watching the game and it's like, oh, my goodness, here's blah, blah, blah. Or you go to a recruiting event and you end up talking to this guy or that guy. Uh, so meeting Coach Knight, though, is, it's still – that still gives you chills, though. It does. It does. Yeah, it just gives you chills for the first time. It was, it's pretty awesome. It's like, wow, that's Bobby Knight. And it wasn't just like I'm at a recruiting event. He's sitting across the way. No, he's sitting out there. He takes time. He wants me to come over and ask me some questions about my drills. Coach Knight is asking me questions about my drills. Oh, God, I know he's just placating me, but, man, it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, so yeah, no, that was pretty cool. Did you have any interactions with the alumni like Vinny, Michael Johnson, David Wesley? Um, David Wesley knew him, played look, uh played against him actually, uh uh when I was a student. I knew David Wesley when I was a student. 
uh, got to meet him. Uh, um, but other than that, uh, no, um, not in not no not. And when I was a student, yes. When I was a coach at Baylor, no interactions because the things kind of unfolded so quickly. And when I say quickly, I mean really, really quickly. Like I wasn't there very long <laughs> uh, before it just, you know, went to hell. So yeah, so obviously that you know there were NCAA violations, criminal activity stuff going on. Yeah. Did you confide in any of your mentors or, or get advice from friends in the business? Okay, I'm gonna be open and honest about that. Uh, that part probably hasn't gotten as much hasn't gotten any coverage really. Uh, yes, I did. I did. I, I had spoken with some people in the business. I'm not going to re- reveal who they were um, because some of them are still in the business. Um, but I had I'd spoke with some people um, and some of my former mentors. I'll mention some that I, you know, they don't have a problem with me talking about them. Uh, okay, so some of the people I spoke with were like Coach Ray of Midwestern and uh, David Manley. Uh, was my high school coach. Uh, coach Coach Manley was, you know, he had a lot of good info for me or uh, suggestions. And then I spoke with, uh, you know, I, I told you I spoke with some some uh, other coaches that are still in the business and um, that I respected and uh, that I thought, you know, would give me an open and honest answer. And, uh, you know, a lot of them just told me to be true to who I who I am. Um, you know, obstruction of justice and lying to the police and witness tampering um, were some of the words that not only the coaches threw around, but but lawyers uh, had were thrown around with me. And one of the things that one of the coaches that's still in business reminded me of is that the last time that something like this happened at Baylor, the assistant coaches ended up being charged and convicted, you know, uh, and they're all convicted felons and the head coach. It was not, you know, um, and they ended up everything that the head coach told them to do. Um, but, you know, when the justice system comes a calling, uh, you know, everybody's going to look out for their own best interest is what they were telling me. And so they told me that I might want to take some steps to protect myself. And some of those coaches, again, are still in the profession. You know, they they could see clearly what was going on and had some concerns and kind of advised me as such. Uh, makes sense. Um you know, were you surprised that Baylor avoided the NCAA death penalty? Looking back on it, well, I won't say that they got off scot free. Um, you know, uh, not being able to play any non-conference games is a financial killer um, in the college basketball ranks. You know, business. Um, you know, you make money off of that. Uh, so that I. Am I surprised? I, I am. I, I, I a little, you know, but I don't think that the NCAA ever wanted to go down that road again with any team. Um, it's a very, very harsh penalty. Uh, was it warranted? Probably. Yeah, if, if you know, probably. Um, but, you know, I'm, I, I actually am 
happy that they they didn't because at the end of the day, all that you know, all you end up doing is punishing the current players, and and for that reason, you know, you probably should do the investigation as quick as possible and you know wrap it up so that you can you know issue out the punishment so it kind of is more toward directed towards the people that were there but ultimately that's kind of administrative sanction and that hurts the school and the current players I and mean, usually those players that 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 uh were there under that regime or part of that leave you know and so have so have the coaches you know I, I do believe in responsibility. I'm just telling you, I, yeah, I guess I this, there's some sentimental feeling there about, you know, that being my alma mater that I, of course, I don't want them to have the death penalty, but did the situation warrant it? Absolutely. There's no question on that. You know, um, this was murder um, and a potential cover-up of a murder uh, on top of NCAA, in, NCAA violations. Um the, and 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 there was absolutely once you're caught, there's still lying going on. Once you're busted, you know there's no sense of of guilt like oh we should come clean because one of our players died or was murdered. Oh uh, no, no, it was a, a cover up to the fullest, and that you know that's that that's treacherous, and and that's kind of why the death penalty was designed. I was think I would think. Because when you have that blatant disregard and lack of remorse, then, you know, that's where you get those kind of consequences. Which coaches, if any, and feel free to, you know, say you'd rather not name names. Belcher was his name. Belcher was the assistant coach. God, Rodney Belcher. I knew he would get it. I knew he would get it. Right. Go ahead. (laughs) I said, which coaches, if any, reached out to you after the fallout? And again, if you don't, want to name names I completely understand there were a few coaches that uh I did not even know that called and reached out to me uh some that I I I don't really remember their names at this point uh but there were a few that reached out very few and when I say very few I mean like a couple like no more than 10 uh maybe less than 10 (laughs) um the primary one that mattered the most for me uh, probably was Coach Ray. Uh, he called me, and in maybe December, you know, it all goes down in uh, August. Um, and uh, he calls me in the middle of his season, and he says, Abar, I know who I'm going to uh, – He oh, he said, Abar, are you done feeling sorry for yourself? And I said – yeah, what are you talking about? He said, well, I'm going to bring you on as an assistant coach next year. Boy, let's be clear. Coach Ray, the guy that I left as a student to go be a manager at Baylor in August, then I left as an assistant. He gave me my first I mean, first college coaching job, and I left him again to go to Sam Houston, is again hiring me. Uh, after this all goes down, he calls me and says, get off the couch, get off, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. It's time to go back to work. He hired me and, uh, you know, reached out to me and, and didn't know what was going to be what, but, uh, he, you know, he, he took care of me anyway. 
And I, I sh- I'll never forget that ever in my life. Um, you know, he's always been kind of a father figure to me anyway. Uh, but that just kind of cemented it. It was like, wow, you want to talk about unconditional love um, and who your real friends are. Um, he kind of just illuminated that for me. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. You know, so um, and I, I worked for him for another three years. You know, I worked for Coach Ray for three years after, uh, in, you know, from 2000, I guess, 2005 to 2008. Um, I worked for Coach Ray. And then, then, you know, what happens in the end is, you know, we win the championship that year. We win our conference championship. And, uh, and what I realized is that, well, now I could kind of go out on my own terms. You know, I had an opportunity to come back. Um, but I was going to have to do several jobs, uh, like women's basketball. By that time, I'm the men's assistant, the women's assistant, and they wanted me to, I think, do cross country head coach. And it was just too much. And, and even with all of that, I still would be getting benefits and retirement. And I was, I don't know, uh, she was, I think I was 32 at the time. 31. Uh, and I knew that, that, you know, those things were going to be important, um, going on. I needed to start building a retirement and planning for the, the end. I, I remember getting sick and, uh, having to pay, I don't know, about $190 at some fly by night health clinic, uh, for, for, uh, some medicine and, and to see a doctor. And, and then, you know, coach was like, well, usually those doctor visits only cost $25. And I was like, well, I've never known that. <laughs> right. And so, um, you know, uh, all of those things coupled with the fact that you can't be in your thirties and still asking mommy for help, uh, was, you know, that kind of ended it. It was just like, you know, there's a cap on, on what I can do and how far I can go in this industry uh, as a result of, you know, the stuff that happened at Baylor. So maybe I need to start looking to do something else. And so I did. Um, I got a job there in Wichita Falls uh, at an airplane factory, uh, working the night shift uh, from 11 to 7 in the morning and uh, with very few days off. But I was used to that. And, you know, there was problems that, that I was so used to working every day. I was like, well, if, if you, the coach doesn't show up for practice, then practice doesn't happen. So, you know, you got to show up. So I, you know, I showed up for my eight hours, did my eight-hour shift, and started really thinking about what I needed to kind of, you know, get right in my life to get the kind of job that I wanted uh, that had that kind of retirement. Now, all along, as I'm going through basketball, my mother, who had been in the military and is still in the military, but went to a different branch, public health service, uh, started working for the Bureau of Prisons as a public health service officer. Trying to get me to leave coaching $10,000 there to come into the Bureau of Prisons. And I, you know, I... The, you know, I've held her back at every at every uh, calling, but finally it was like, okay, what do I need to do to, to get that done? 
because uh, it offered an opportunity for stability and security. And, I, and I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't know how badly I wanted that. Uh, so kind of I was done with basketball. So I was out of basketball. Now, did you, did you, did you consider coaching AAU or high school on the side, or were you happy going out on Well, Kaplan, let me be real honest with you. Gosh, I'm about to say something probably get me in trouble here. When I was growing up, AAU basketball, you know, was in its infancy, and we didn't have an opinion of some of those guys. And so AAU, you know, now has taken off and has become so much more than it was when I was growing up. Uh, I'll I'll just say, you know, the, the thought of doing that really never entered my mind because I just, I just, you know, if I if I couldn't do it at the highest levels, I didn't really want to do. It. You know, after you've been in that arena and and, and you've, you've you know fought at that level. You know, just the thought of of kind of having to take a step back, kind of you know, and it's not my ego. I'll just tell you, I just it just wasn't what I really wanted to do, you know. And it's probably because I hadn't pursued it that way from the very beginning, you know, from, from the very beginning in high school. You know, coaching career for me started in high school and extended into my thirties. You know, had I pursued AAU and started at that, then I might love for that. But that's not how I had had seen the game, and I wasn't really really looking to make that switch. Oh no, I'm with you on that. And that's you... not to say anything bad about the AAU guys. It just wasn't for me. Yeah, no, exactly. How have you been able to remain so positive in life? I've had good mentors. I've had good mentors. I've had great mentors throughout my coaching career, my high school days, uh, coaches. My father wasn't in my life early on in my life, and my coaches were my father figures, and I had great ones. I worked for some great guys and had the opportunity to be kind of molded and shaped by some people with some, you know, real stuff about them. Uh, and, and I, you know, I know now – as an older man, over 45, uh, that I was blessed. That's what, that's what I was, brother. I was blessed with good mentors. Um, and when you have that, um, you know, they prepare you for life. That's what coaches do. See, because every day is not a holiday. You know, it's not always sunshine and rainbows. We hear these, you know, these things all the time from coaches but but really what they're doing is preparing you for life. And that's how life is. And, you know, life threw me some some curveballs, but I wasn't knocked out. You know, I have a degree from Baylor University and and pretty much done with my master's from a, uh, from Sam Houston. So I'm just telling you that, man, I, I've been really blessed in my life. And, and it, you know, it'd be a shame if, if I let – you know, one bad situation or one bad thing here or there kind of stop that success because ultimately that's what my coaches were were driving me for was preparing me for life, you know, and those twisted turns. What do you do after a loss? Well, you're going to have losses in life. You're going to lose family members. You're going to lose jobs. 
but what do you do? How do you how do you respond to that? And I was I you know I've been very very fortunate to have people that have prepared me to do just that. Uh, even when you're in your own head, and you know that's not to say you're not going to get depressed at times, and you know you can't take a a month here or or a couple or a year here to kind of figure things out and you know uh, get your feelings, but uh, ultimately who you are, you know who those coaches wanted me to be, is what's coming through. Is is you know, it doesn't matter what profession you put me in. I'm going to f- try to find success because I'm a, I want to win and I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to do that. I'm going to do the hard work that it takes to do that. And and that's what I've found is that, you know, uh, if you're willing to work hard, you know, <laughs> you're not going to have bad days. You're not going to have near as many bad days if you do that hard work. You're going to end up smiling a lot more. And so that's kind of propelled me through life is, you know, listening to those mentors that you have early, kind of really, you know, honing in on those ideals as you get older and uh, more mature and um, and then kind of living up to them. That's awesome. You know, last question you know, related to Baylor yeah. uh, was, you know, do you feel that coaches like Coach K, Bayheim, and Samson hurt your chances of landing a division one job after their comments. And it wasn't just them. Let me be clear. I heard that, you know, a coach walked into the coaching uh, conference that they called and uh, stood up well-respected black coach. Um, walked in there and told those guys, uh, I don't know how many coaches are sitting in there, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand and told them, Nobody better hire that guy. And they didn't know all the information. They just knew that Dave was their friend. And I get that. And they were just trying to be loyal. And they thought that I was just seeking attention. And I get it. If you don't have all the information at the time, then, you know, you're going to be loyal to your friend. And that was pretty easy to do. I get it. Um, Did they hurt my chances? Yeah, they probably did, you know. They probably did. I knew Coach Simpson. I will say this, though. I wasn't new to the business. I've been in the business 10 years. Um, A couple of those guys that were giving me those lectures, yeah, I I, (laughs) – they right there with Dave Bliss. Yep. Does that make sense? I don't know Coach K. Now, Coach K, I never never, uh, knew that about Coach K. But I'm going to just tell you, those other two, Oh, yeah. Hey, there's no secrets in what we do. We all know. <laughs> or we've all heard a little here or there. But with one of them, for sure, Oklahoma ain't very far from, from uh, Baylor. <laughs> from Baylor. Yeah, we all know what's going on up there, buddy. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm just uh, yeah. saying, so some of that criticism, while it was shocking and saddening, I, you know, I'm, I, I'm not taking lectures from the likes of you or you. I know who you are. I already know who you are. <laughs> Does yeah. that make sense? So, but yeah, I will I've, tell you this: Coach K was my hero, man. That's my hero. He, who's who's? Go, tell me what coach growing up that ain't their hero. They, you don't have six or seven Coach K tapes. You know what I mean? You haven't gone to a couple of his his uh, clinics. Uh, you know, I'm just saying. So that's my hero, and that really, really 
you know, at the time, you know, I'd be lying if I said that, you know, I wasn't in my head about it. But um, it was probably more with Coach K than those other two. Those other two, I knew who they were. So they, they did their their opinions of me really didn't matter. Not even then. <laughs> I'll be honest. I knew who they were then. So there's that. I just say, you know, so uh but with Coach K, yes, that hurt. That that was that, that probably hurt hurt my career chances a little bit. <laughs> but I, you know, here, the other part of that is, you know, you take a leap of faith. But I knew where I, I knew where I was. I knew the the risk involved. This was this is, you know, this was not this is this is the, you know, in this is the big leagues, you know, so you 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 go with a certain knowledge that this could most likely will not work out positively career wise for you. I knew that, but I did it anyway. Yeah. So it's here hey, let me tell you something, and it doesn't matter what profession you're in, but coaching especially because you're charged with mentoring uh, young adults uh, at the college level and at the high school level, young young kids, you know. Um, if you are not willing to walk away from your profession, um, to kind of do what's right and ethical, then you probably really need to really evaluate what you're doing. You need to reevaluate, unless that's who you want to be. And I can tell you right now, that's not who I wanted to be. It's not my who my mother raised. It's not who my coaches raised. Uh, it just was. It wasn't what I was taught to be. So uh, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't do it not knowing that, you know, that wasn't a possibility. Uh, you know, uh, if it was just the NCAA stuff, then maybe we could have a different conversation. But I'm going to just be crystal clear with you. There was a execution style murder here. And uh, what was being suggested was at the very least, tampering with the murder investigation and witnesses and obstruction of justice. No short of that. And I didn't have that in me. I, I just did not. And if that's what was required to remain in college coaching, then college coaching was not going to be for me. No, and, and that's a great mindset to have. I, I don't think I know anybody who uh, would be able to live with themselves knowing that. So. Well, I, I will also say this to you, you know, uh, it's like, man, how I, I just I guess I don't I don't know any, you know, I don't know what people if you could do that, if you could go to those lengths, what lengths would you stop at? If you could cross those lines, what lines could you cross? And when I looked in the mirror, these are the questions that I'm asking myself as a young professional. And I knew full well that that it, 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 this had to stop somewhere. And so it, that was not for me, you know. And I and I'm okay with that. I, you know, I'm 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 probably a lot more okay with it now because I've found nothing but success in my new profession. I've been promoted, I think, four times now. Uh, look, I don't look. I've I've just got a new promotion, literally just moved here maybe four days ago. So that's just between me and you. Uh, so now I'm like at my fourth prison institution. I'm running a complex. Now I'm the supervisor for the whole complex 
for four institutions. I have a staff of 30, and we got COVID going on. And, you know, um, these people are looking at, looking to me to honestly, how are we going to deliver educational services with during COVID-19? My job is to make sure that we can do that safely and not to put them in harm's way. I'm literally, you know, it's life and death with this in, inside our institution right now. And so, you know, that stuff prepared me for that. Coaching career to deal with life and death situations and do that with the proper ethics. Um, had I listened to maybe some of those naysayers like Coach K, Coach Sampson, and Coach Behan, where would I be? Would I be prepared for that? Would I make the right call? You know, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm kind of happy with where I went because I kind of think that now I'm I am mentally prepared and ethically prepared to make big calls, which is what I'm called on to do now. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. Sounds like sounds like you're you're doing quite well, uh, you know, post coaching. Uh, I saw that uh, I was watching what was it cue ball documentary on you know, like prison basketball, but just the the rehabilitative service they offer, not yep. just you know, take people off the streets, but to, yeah. you know, prepare them for life after prison. So, I mean, that's admirable work that you're doing. Right. Um, well, I'll just tell you what, coaching, teaching is all teaching. Coaching is all teaching. So uh, that's what I do now in the prison is now I'm a supervisor of teachers. And, and uh, it kind of suits me uh, because all that is is coaching. You know, we're going to do a lot of coaching with those teachers, and that's exactly what's going on. When's the last time you attended a college basketball game? Oh, Lord. <laughs> it would have been a Midwestern game, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 2012. I really don't do college basketball anymore, um, even when, you know, I might follow the uh, NCAAs in March. I just, you know, for me, I had to walk away. Uh, and and that was, for me, the best thing because it enabled me to focus on my family and my future going forward and not look back and wonder if. Because now some of the guys that uh, I used to go to camps with or that I came up with, through the coaching ranks or getting head coaching jobs at D1 level, at the D1 level, they're making millions of dollars. And I'm like, wow, I could have done that, right? Or I could have done that. Yeah, woulda, coulda, shoulda. But this is your life now, and you want to find enjoyment in it. You don't want to spend your time looking back. And so, you know, I've kind of moved on to other things. But it it has expanded my horizons because now I do see other things, whereas – when I was a college basketball coach, that's all I cared about. That's it's college stuff, college sports, uh, NBA sports. You know, that's really all I cared about. In fact, that's how I judged or or uh, how I how I did time or how I kept time. Uh, first semester, second semester, uh, you know, winter holiday, summer break. 
that's how I saw life, you know, you know, so I, I would say that, that leaving coaching has kind of opened up my, my eyes a little bit to see more of the world. I'm married now and uh, I'm really into my family. I got four, uh, four girls. And oh, that, thank you. None of that would, none of that would probably have been possible if I would have still been coaching. At least in my mind. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, you know, do you think that more can be done at the college level other than school self-reporting as far as compliance goes nowadays? Compliance is tough. You know, um, unless you're going to run it like, you know, unless you're going to have uh, another, you have a regulating body already but they don't have near what they need to regulate it the way they want to regulate it. That hence self-reporting. Unless you're going to put more people on the ground and more investigators on the ground, then it, it's going to be a hard thing. You know, um, compliance officers, even at the school, they're hired by the school to keep them in compliance, but they can't monitor everything and they can't see everything. And, you know, um, unless you're going to invest more money in that, then, you know, you're going to find a hard time kind of reining in some of these bad actors. Um, And then there's the ridiculous, and I get it's a slippery slope, so they want to cover all their bases. But, you know, there's a lot of coaches out there that have a very good point that, hey, man, this kid, this kid is – you know, indigent basically, and his mom can't afford a winter coat, but we took him from Miami and brought him to, you know, South Dakota to play basketball. And he needs a coat in Long John's. And he doesn't have any money for it. And, you know, can we buy him? Some? And there, there's some things that the NCAA does, NCAA does to provide for kids like that, but it probably needs to be more, you know. Um, that would be what I say. Uh, and and that's where, you know, it becomes hard with that compliance stuff because you're not going to let the kid freeze. You're not going to let him go hungry. Uh, and so some of that stuff, you know, that becomes the easy stuff for the compliance officer to, to kind of pin down. But then the undercover stuff that the million-dollar booster is doing they're unaware of. They don't have the means to investigate it. You know, so I don't know. Is there more that can be done? I I I I'd say yes, but the, you know, the schools have to decide to make that investment. That's fair. Do you think the Adidas scandal is gonna empower change of culture uh, you know, at the school levels? Did they put them in jail? That's a great question. If they don't put them in jail, then it won't have the effect. Just them just being convicted felons on probation or, you know, getting probation won't have the effect that it needs to have. These people lied uh, to FBI investigators. They committed conspiracy. We have people in jail for doing much less. And the amount of money should be counted in just like they would count the money that uh, a drug dealer would get. Uh, or has, or that they catch on a drug dealer. 
they count that and they count that towards their sentencing and then how they determine their sentencing. Anything short of that won't have the effect that it needs to have. If you're going to have a person that is dealing in hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash on a regular basis, basically with a drug dealer, they can find a, a, an account, a, a, a witness or a, um, what do you call those guys? Uh, oh God, just think a snitch, <laughs> whatever you want to call them. Uh, but they can they can find Patsy, Patsy. Not not a not so much a Patsy, but what do you call the guys that they send in there to do the sting? Uh, good Lord, um, I can't. It starts with an A, I think. Uh, anyway, they can find somebody and have them wired up and send them in. The FBI can find somebody, wire them up, send them in, and have them ask you a question like how much how many how much how much how, how many times a week do you sell this amount of drugs? How many times a week do you do that? Well, that if you answer that question, oh, I had them send me, you know, a pound of crack every week. Uh, for the last 50 weeks, that can be used against you in sentencing. And that's how these people end up with 20-year sentences. And that nobody ever saw that, 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 that those drugs, but now that's counted against you. Well, the same thing needs to happen with these coaches. If you delivered a bag with $350,000 in it every week for the last three years, that money needs to be counted against you. If they did that, and those those coaches would receive significant sentences somewhere in the neighborhood of five to six years. Well, that's I'm just telling you, if they did it like that, then they cut it out because nobody wants to go home and explain to their family that they're going to jail for their head coach or this booster. They cut it out. But until they do that, they're not going to do it because there's no there's no consequence. If you can, if you can simply leave your D one assistant job and go now run Nike's um, AAU team in L A. and make a salary comparable to what you were making, if not more, with more freedom at AAU, then why would you ever comply with the NCAA? And it happens all the time. So, you know, short of those guys getting the, getting a sentence, you know, and I don't understand how it's not defrauding the school. I really don't understand that. You know, I bet you if, if, if you had some U.S. attorneys that were, well, they're doing it now. It, to me, it's fraud. You're defrauding the schools as well. These these schools are investing in in these players, and they're doing it on you know in good faith. They're signing contracts with these players, and really that is not in good faith because you've defrauded the school. You misrepresented, uh, you know who, what you are or what it took or the enticements that you offered to get this person to come to your school. Coach, this is a start bench cut. I get three things. Start one, you bench one, you cut one. Say that again. I said this is a second. I 
call start bench cut. I give you three things: one that you start, one that you bench, one that you cut. Go for it. Nike, Adidas, Under Armour. Start Nike. Cut Adidas. Oh, I guess bench Under Armour. Okay. Okay. Uh, you being in Texas, Whataburger, Chick Fil A, Raisin Canes. Mm, we're cutting Raisin Canes. We're starting Chick Fil A. We're benching Whataburger. Okay. Okay. Uh, Jordan, LeBron, Kobe. <laughs> That's easy. I'm starting Jordan. I am benching Kobe. I am cutting LeBron, probably. Man, I like you, Coach. Man, we get along. I don't know. I'm just telling you that's probably me. I'm an old school guy. I'm over 45, so that's why LeBron ends up cut. Exactly. Uh, Even though he's great. Don't get me wrong. uh, Exactly. Hoosiers, Coach Carter, Glory Road. Ooh. You got to start Hoosiers, baby. I'll go with uh, benching Coach Carter and cutting Glory Road. Okay. Ah, Godly. Gosh, that's a hard one. That's just really tough. That, that's a tough one. I said, who are three guests I should have on the podcast who would help younger coaches, uh, you know, just from their experiences or uh, just would help younger coaches get into the business or uh, advance? Grant McCaslin would be a must. If you haven't had him, you should. Um, I would say if you haven't reached out to Billy Clyde, I would, because I will tell you, in my younger years, he was he he was great for me, and I think he might have an interesting perspective for younger coaches uh, on do's and don'ts in our business. Um, and I would say Rodney Terry. Rodney Terry has also had a pretty interesting, uh, you know, upbringing and, and, and it, you know, kind of career throughout the, the coaching carousel. So those guys would probably be the three that I would say right off the top of my head. Coach, that's great. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. I know that you know, you, you say you're a former coach. I still say you're always a coach, but, uh, you know, I, I just, I thought that you would give great perspective uh, just from your experiences, your trials and tribulations. And, uh, you know, I, I think I speak for a lot of coaches when I say that not only did you do the right thing, but, you know, you, you did the right thing as a coach uh, your entire time as a coach and your players uh, definitely benefit from it. Well, sir, I sure do appreciate you taking the time and reaching out. You're right. Once a coach, always a coach. And uh, it was a pleasure. And uh, if I could as any help to anybody, uh, then, you know, then it was a, a well, a great experience. You know, um, I'm, I'm happy to have had the opportunity. Thank you so much. No problem. Coach. Stay safe. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Box Score podcast. 
Don't forget to subscribe, leave reviews, and rate five stars.